This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 78. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Sean Standard Stockton, President and Chief Investment Officer of Ensemble Capital. I'm always looking for new and interesting topics to cover on here. And I was doing research on potential guests for the podcast and came across Sean's website, intrinsicinvesting.com, and I had to learn more. It sounds like a combination of intrinsic value and value investing. And as you will hear, Sean goes in depth on how he's derived an investing strategy using this concept. While Sean's firm is not microcap focused, we try to apply this idea of intrinsic investing for someone who has a microcap focused investing strategy. The goal for this episode is to learn more about what intrinsic investing is, as well as discuss a few articles and topics Sean and his team have written about on intrinsicinvesting.com. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 78, and I would like to welcome Sean Standard Stockton, president and CIO of Ensemble Capital. Sean, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Robert, thanks so much for having me. Really a pleasure. It's uh, the pleasure is all mine. And uh, so, a- as we usually do here on the podcast, you know, I wanted to start off with uh, your background and how'd you get your start in investing in finance? Gosh, well, you know, I was one of those uh, young kids who discovered stock picking and 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 fell in love. I think until I was about thirteen years old, I wanted to be Robbie Thompson or the, the then second baseman for the San Francisco Giants, and uh, and then on a long uh, cross country drive um, with my parents, I, I got a book about stock picking and uh, and was exposed to something totally new. Unfortunately for me, it was it was a terrible book offering terrible advice, and it, it took me a number of years before I. Kind of matured enough to to find good books on investing, um, and you know knew that's what I wanted to do. You know, by the time I was off to college and and went directly into the investment management industry, and uh, and after a couple of years, I I joined um, Mr. Kurt Brown, who had founded the predecessor firm to Ensemble Capital, Curtis Brown and Company, and I was Kurt's first employee, and I was in his my early mid twenties, and and uh, we kind of co-founded Ensemble Capital together back in two thousand four. And then uh, have grown it ever since. And so, say Ensemble Capital manages around eight hundred million dollars, and uh, with about a staff of thirteen. Mm-hmm. So you know, going back to when you were a kid and you knew that investing was your your life's passion and this was it. You know, is there a particular story in mind other than you know reading the bad book? Which I was going to ask what book it was, but then you said it was the ba- a bad one. I was like, okay, you know, let's not give exposure to the bad book, of course. But um, <laughs> but it, you know, what what was that experience? Would you say that really it, it you're like I'm hooked. This is it. I'm done. 
this is investing is my life's work that I want it to be. Well, remember, I wanted to be a, a baseball player, and, right. and I think what my sports interest, because I was never a, a great athlete, was always really more about the strategy of, of a sport, and um, that's that kind of backhanded compliment that coaches would give my parents. Like, your, your son's really good at strategy, which means you, you can't shoot a basketball, but he knows what he's doing on the court, and, and, and so, you know, for me, investing... Um, it just captured my attention once I understood that investing is about understanding a company, which is an organization, kind of an entity, a collection of people who've come together to develop something and, and provide value in the world. Mm -hmm. And that there are all these levers you can pull and all these interesting businesses. And so today, like the kind of the joy I get in investing is looking into a company and not, you know, I, it's, I don't get excited because a stock is trading at 10 times PE or has a high dividend yield. I get excited because I learn about some company and I get to understand that there, there's something special about this company. And if there's, there's nothing special about it, it doesn't interest me. But there's a lot of businesses out there that ha have something special. And in particular for me, that's something special that prevents other people, other companies from competing with them. And not only is that kind of an interesting thing to understand those dynamics, it also happens to be very lucrative. And so kind of for me, that's what it's all about. And I think the book that first turned me onto that was Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street. It's my first book too. And, yeah, and, and Peter's book's so good. It's, it's a great starter book for people because mm -hmm. it really makes this connection between stocks and, and a real company, that you are like an owner of a business. And, and the reason you should want to buy a stock is because you want to own a piece of that business, and, and it, that's directly what you're doing. It's not because the stock's cheap or it's been on a nice trend on a chart or they're going to report good earnings. It's that I want to participate in the cash flows of that business. And and Lynch's book did a really good job of describing that concept to me when I was quite young. Mm -hmm. So what what other than and then one up on Wall Street, which is obviously it's a classic. It was my first book too. You know what what were some of the other sources that you know, because I'm I'm guessing you were more of a DIY. You know, your kid you became interested at 13. You know, you must have had some sources that you went to that helped you until you you know got to college or even during college. You know, what what was it that really helped uh, helped you in your own self education? Well, Buffett and Munger talk about the um, the kind of value investor inoculation. This idea that there's a moment in time when some people grasp what value investing is all about mm -hmm. and and Munger's kind of said either you get it or you don't and 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 you either get that inoculation it takes or it doesn't mm -hmm. and for me that was David Draymond um so uh David Draymond wrote a book uh I think it, he first published it probably in the early 90s and um he was a, a mutual fund manager at Scudder Investments in where I got coincidentally ended up having my first job um and and what Draymond really um, popularized or, or monetized, I guess, in a vehicle was what today we think about as like quantitative investing, right? And that he demonstrated that um, quantitatively cheap stocks outperform more expensive stocks. And today we kind of take that for granted. And someone like Warren Buffett has been talking about that in a qualitative sense for a very long time, but Draymond showed it quantitatively. Mm -hmm. um, another book that was um, similar was James O'Shaughnessy's um, book, What Works on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. 
both of them are very quantitative books, but for somebody like myself who was young, who really didn't know anything about analyzing a business, and it, it was more the focus on on stocks and the understanding like, oh, like that's what works on Wall Street, right? Is is finding things that are undervalued. And and what one up on or excuse me, what on what works on Wall Street highlighted that a lot of value investors don't appreciate is that there are other things besides just statistically cheap stocks that are indicators of high returns, that things on high returns on invested capital and growth add to, to the value premium. And so today, we don't really call ourselves value investors at Ensemble in, in that we're not looking just for statistically cheap stocks, but we're looking for stocks that traded at discount to their intrinsic value. And the intrinsic value of a business is made up of a lot of things, and, and it's not—it's not just its book value, it's not just its growth rate, it's not just its cash flows. It's a combination of things. And so, those two books, though, I think provide the evidence for me—the statistical evidence—that form the backbone of, of being a value investor at heart. Gotcha. So uh, you know, I'm moving forward here. You know, um, I found you on on Twitter, and uh, we follow some mutual people. And when I was looking you up on Ensemble Capital, I was drawn to your your publication invest intrinsicinvesting.com and uh, there's a lot of really interesting information on there on what that means and you actually kind of alluded to some of the main major themes of that uh, already in this interview so you know I, I figured I would encapsulate in one question here you know for those who may not know what what is intrinsicinvesting.com and then you know maybe uh, some more color as to what you mean by uh, intrinsic investing so Intrinsic Investing is the blog of Ensemble Capital. Uh, myself and other analysts here uh, write both on kind of philosophical or investment process sort of ideas as well as write, doing write-ups of companies that we hold. And and really the, the reason we do that is that in 2008 and 2009, Ensemble survived the financial crisis without losing any of our clients. And, and that was a huge deal for the for the firm, right? And that was the the reason asset management firm blows up isn't just because markets decline, but because you lose clients during that time. And in managing people's assets through you know the worst crisis of the past hundred years, I learned that it is your clients' conviction in your strategy um, during bad times that allows you to retain them as a client, but also for them to live through the bad times, which they need to do to produce the long-term returns that they want to achieve. And so we think a lot about conviction from our standpoint, like how deep is our conviction in a business we're investing in. But it taught me that your client's conviction in, in your strategy is just as important. And so in 2009, I remember having a, a call from a client who asked me, could the market just go to zero and stay there? And it's easy now to say, like, that's a foolish question that that's a, you know, a naive investor. But it was not a foolish question in the first quarter of 2009. And, and no sophisticated investor could tell somebody, oh, that's a that's a silly question because no one knew what was going to happen next. And and what I was able to tell the person, though, was that there was two stocks in their portfolio. I just gave his example. We owned Apple and we owned Costco at the time. And we're going to say, you know, there's an Apple store not far from our offices and where this client lives. And I was able to say, go to that store. There's literally people spending the night overnight in line waiting to give Apple cash. Or go to Costco. The lines at Costco are getting longer because they serve relatively high net worth consumers who are looking to cut back since they didn't lose their job. But they're looking to cut back as the crisis. So they're going to Costco more. 
and it was clear that to the client that these businesses were like the real the real value there like it's tangible right so real estate investors often talk about tangible it's a tangible thing you can go like touch the house right it has real value but so do businesses that produce cash flows right and stocks are kind of intangible assets but businesses are they produce real cash and so what intrinsic investing is really about is saying that the process of investing is about identifying what is the intrinsic value to these companies what is it that makes them valuable not is not what is their competitors trade for in the market what what are takeout acquisition multiples it's like if you're the private owner of this business you own the whole thing what's it worth and so that's our philosophy is identifying businesses in which we can make an informed judgment about that intrinsic value and then paying a discount to that intrinsic value which is entirely different than saying, well, it has a low PE ratio, right? Or it's got a high dividend yield. Those are, are outputs of something being a good value. But we own Netflix, which I can talk about if you want later on. Netflix has a PE of like 100. I don't even know what it is. Um, but we think it has far more intrinsic value than the current pr price of the stock. N not because, well, there's some multiple, but like if you own the whole thing, which is your business and you got all the cash flows, it'd be worth more than, than what it's trading for today. Mm -hmm. So that's what intrinsic value means. And, and that's what, you know, we blog about it as a way to inform our um, people who, you know, people who read it, mm -hmm. what our conviction is, what our, what our process is so they can maintain conviction in it. And also because I've learned over the years, that, at least for me, the way I learn what I think is to write it down, right? That rather than having a fully formed thought that then you write down, it's the process of writing that causes you to refine and, and create more robust ideas. So, mm -hmm. You know, we would write it if no one else was reading it because we get a lot of value out of it. Mm -hmm. So, Sean, you know, I want to follow up on that and because I really want to understand, you know, how, uh, you, you know, because clearly your edge is this idea of finding, you know, the intrinsic value of the company and then paying a discount to the intrinsic value. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm currently in business school and, you know, uh, a few, a couple of professors talk about, you know, trying to find that intrinsic value. So, and, and it seems a lot more simple than how your firm does it. So maybe how, how does, how do you and your firm differentiate yourselves in terms of saying, you know, our intrinsic value maybe is closer to what the value of the company is versus maybe somebody else that says, oh, we also use intrinsic value as part of our investing strategy. So we're of the opinion that we aren't in a good position to assess the intrinsic value of most public companies. Okay. But that there are some companies that have really strong competitive advantages, something about them that prevents their competitors from coming in and, and stealing profits when, when things get lucrative. Mm -hmm. And those businesses, we think, are far more forecastable mm -hmm. in what their futures look like. It's not that you know exactly what's going to happen next because you don't. You but if you think about some sort of you know, wild cross-country race or something, you know, a car race. And you think about um, somebody's in a really rugged vehicle, right? And it's got lots of backup gas and, you know, lots of supplies. And you can look at that and say, I don't know what's going to come, but this thing's geared up to make it, whatever gets thrown at it. Mm -hmm. And the economy and competitors are going to throw everything they have at, at every company. And most companies out there, because they lack sorts of competitive advantages, it's just a guess what's going to happen. It's, sure. it's, it's they're riding a wave. Are they on the right side of the wave or not? And there's a lot of luck involved. Mm -hmm. So I guess, oh, sorry. To have these competitive advantages that, that give them the opportunity to kind of make it through all of that. And so we isolate our, 
process to, to finding those companies and then assessing their value. Okay. So then, sorry, my last follow-up question to this, because this is very interesting. You're the first person I've had on here that really talks about the importance of intrinsic value. So, you know, I guess in that sense, you know, how do you then quantify uh, a competitive advantage uh, for a particular company you're looking at? So the reason I think what we do is is durable, the reason we'll be able to, we've been able to do it for a long time and we'll be able to keep doing it for a long time is because there is no formula for identifying this. It's it's very kind of case specific. So we can talk about a couple different examples if you want, but it's all about kind of looking for stories, listening for, for situations that don't behave the way you'd expect them to. Mm-hmm. And and when that happens, you say, why are these businesses acting the way that they do? And so you know, a business like First Republic that we own, it's a bank. Banks are, they buy and sell money. It is a commodity business, and unless you're one of the biggest banks in the world, you can't do any better than anybody else. But First Republic has figured out that there's a small number of people who really want high levels of customer service, and culturally they've built an organization that can deliver that in a way that we don't think other banks can culturally deliver. Mm-hmm. It's a very intangible sort of competitive advantage. Then you have things like, say, somebody that makes uh, concrete. We don't know any you know, uh, materials businesses like that, but that's just really heavy to move. And so if you have a mine that is near where the buyers are, your cost of transporting it is so low that nobody else can set up a mine close enough to move it at the same cost. And so you have a kind of permanent cost advantage. And so it's really impossible for someone to beat you on price. And so there's ways that you can have that sort of cost advantage. So for us, it's all about what are the structural reasons that competition can recognize that you have a very lucrative business but can't do anything to come take those profits. Interesting. That's really, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, cool. So, you know, g- going on, my, my next question then for you, is, and this is kind of from your website, and I was just curious to get some, some more um, color on this, is, you know, how do you determine whether a company has intrinsic value that is accessible or too difficult to assess? Yeah, so all the value of a stock is, is the future cash flows that can be distributed to shareholders. That's it. There's some special situations where a business has some sort of strategic value. Um, Years ago, when Facebook bought Instagram, uh, they paid a billion dollars, and the company had no revenue and just 17 employees. And I was super naive, (laughs) thinking to myself, that we're back in a bubble, that's insane. Today, Instagram does $10 billion a year in revenue. I saw that Bloomberg recently estimated the value of Instagram on a standalone basis at $100 billion. And so Facebook recognized what I was too naive to recognize, which was that Instagram was a threat to Facebook's cash flow. And that if Instagram was worth well more than a billion dollars to Facebook because of the amount of cash flow that would drain out of Facebook if they didn't control Instagram. So there's some special cases like that. But for the most part, um, we're thinking about uh, businesses in which they have forecastable cash flows mm-hmm. and that those are the ones that we can assess. If you look at something like um, like a, one of the major oil companies or, or I'll give you an example, like a, a business that sells lithium, right? So lithium is used in electric vehicle batteries and we're pretty optimistic about electric vehicles globally um, growing much faster than, than the market overall believes. Um, and so uh, a lithium company is... Uh, if they have control of lithium, and there's, it's hard to mine lithium, there's not a lot of it, you get a very good competitive advantage. 
And looking at it, you might say, yeah, but a new battery technology might come out that just eliminates the need for lithium. This stuff's pretty poisonous, right? And so there's incentives to, to figure out how to do this without lithium. Mm-hmm. And so the cash flows could just stop at some point in the future. The business just goes to zero because lithium's just not even needed anymore. Right. And so when we're thinking about the ability to assess something, is we're looking for businesses in which there's kind of forecastable cash flows. And by forecastable, I do not mean with super precision, but a reasonable estimation of what the cash flows look like in the future and and a, a limited number of kind of situations in which those could just be extinguished. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many businesses out there look like they could be great, you know, and then along comes something new and they just get extinguished, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to have a sense of history just to recognize how fast things can change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I say most businesses are, are, you know, probably trading near their intrinsic value. The market's really pretty efficient. And so we really are focused on businesses in which we can make informed judgments and which we can identify times when they're undervalued. Right. And Sean, for full disclosure, do you own any shares in uh, Instagram or Facebook? Uh, no, we do not and, and have not in the past either. So as you know, this is we're we're most we're a, a microcap focused uh, podcast here, and and I know you you and your firm you're not you don't focus too much on investing in microcap stocks, but you know for for you know to to humor us I guess a little bit here you know me and my audience you know how would you maybe apply the this intrinsic investing strategy if you were to potentially look at a microcap uh, uh, company. So one of the ways that we talk about what we do is we uh, apply a private equity approach to public markets. Mm-hmm. And and what that means is that a private equity buyer is just valuing a business based on the cash it can generate, right? And that's what the value of the business is if, in, in, for private investors, right? Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to buy a piece of ensemble, what you'd care about is how much cash can we distribute to you over time? Whether we were going to like beat our estimates for next quarter's earnings would be totally irrelevant to you as, as an investor, a private investor in ensemble capital. And, and I think that microcap investing is, is, is closer, right, to like private equity investing than, than investing in, in large cap companies, right? You still have businesses that are more in development. And it's more obvious that they are businesses that you're taking a piece of, right? And, and, and what's interesting to me about them for your audience is that most professional investors don't focus on them. And so there's a real opportunity for for people to have insight into those businesses, right, that is better than the overall market. So I don't think that the general approach, like the way if you read Intrinsic Investing, what we're writing about is just as applicable to mega caps as it is to micro caps, as it is to private companies and public companies, because all of it is centered around how do you assess the value of a company? It's not about the size, it's just the company. And then how do you take a piece of it? Now, large companies are kind of easier to develop a competitive advantage, but small companies just would have a smaller area of competitive advantage. But if there's like a local coffee house in your neighborhood, it may well have a competitive advantage in that it's been there for a long time and it has regulars. And sure, someone can open up across the street, but no one would go there. And, and that long-term relationship with the customers is a competitive advantage that's not easy to break. Um, so I think all of this applies just as much to small companies as to big companies. Gotcha. So you know, now I wanted to get into some of the specifics in terms of how you apply this strategy when you are assessing a potential new investment in 
of any of, of for a company of any size. You know, so you know you've alluded to this already a little bit, but I think it would be good to get a kind of a full answer in the sense that you know what what are your criteria then when you're assessing a potential new investment? So we have basically three areas of assessment for a company um, that we start looking at. Um, the first is is it's what referred to as its moat, right? It's competitive advantages. And then the the um, relevancy of that set of competitive advantages in the future. So we're looking at, you know, how competitively advantaged is the business today and, uh, and, and how much will that matter over the long term? So if you look at a business like Kodak, the film company, nobody ever... Oh, real quick, are you currently a shareholder or were a shareholder? <laughs> no, thank God. It's basically... <laughs> Um, but in the in the late nineties, when when it basically went bankrupt or you know near zero, I guess they have a little bitcoining operation now or something weird. But Kodak, the film company, right? I mean, like you know right. cameras, right? And this was like a huge business, and Kodak had a competitive advantage around its analog film patent portfolio, and nobody ever really beat that, right? They had a competitor in Fuji, but nobody came up and said we just can do analog film better. Is that new players invented digital photography and made the analog patent portfolio irrelevant, right? Um, and so, just because you have a strong competitive advantage, it, you may have what we refer to as a legacy moat. In other words, a moat, a competitive advantage that was relevant in the past, but life has gone on past you and and it's no longer relevant. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how competitive advantage businesses and then how relevant that set of advantages will be over the longer term. Um, then we focus on management, and we're interested in how talented and motivated is management at actually increasing the economic value of their business, which seems like a self-evident thing, right? And it is for managers of private companies. Like, why else are you doing what you're doing? But unfortunately, there's a lot of public companies that are managed by people who just have other agenda items, right? That's driving up the value of the business is not how they think of of what they do. And then the other piece is, is their capital allocation. So if you're running a company well, especially a more mature company, you're probably creating excess cash beyond what you need to reinvest in the business. And so how do you handle that cash? And since as a shareholder, that's my cash, I want to make sure that the management team is appropriately being vested my confidence for them to manage that cash on my behalf, whether to return to me when appropriate or to do something else with it. Right. And then we think in the third area around what we call that understandability. So the kind of intrinsic understandability, like how understandable is this business to anybody? And then our own understanding, our own circle of competence. So you might have a business like the oil and gas industry where people will spend their entire life in the industry and they still can't tell you where oil prices are going to go, right? They still don't know. It's just, just it's an intrinsically difficult to forecast business. Whereas somebody who has, say, worked at Procter & Gamble and Consumer Product Supplies, for 30 years, like they, they kind of know what's going on, right? And they can't forecast everything, but you can understand the business. And then the other piece is us, right? So um, years ago, we looked at Qualcomm, which we don't own, we've never owned Qualcomm, but we were looking at it and say they clearly have a competitive advantage. They have this amazing patent portfolio that basically requires all of the cell phone makers to pay Qualcomm for equipment so that their phones work. There's no way around it, right? Every cellular phone has Qualcomm equipment on it. But we realized that an understanding of how durable that would be would require an understanding of patent law 
and we knew that there are hedge funds out there who have patent lawyers on staff, and they were just better positioned to understand that business than us. And so to the extent that we thought the stock was undervalued, it might just be that we don't understand the situation well. And so we'd pass on something like that. So those are kind of the three areas that we're looking at. And, and when something qualifies on all three of those areas, then we dig into what's it worth and is it trading a discount? Okay. That sounds like a lot of work to just get to that point. <laughs> um, and, and so, well, let's, let's fall on that line then. You know, once you have, uh, you know, assessed that the company does meet all that criteria, you know, you know what next? You know, what, what, is, what is the next step in your, in your due diligence process? So once we've assessed this is the sort of business that we could own at some price, then we need to assess the intrinsic value. So that value is just a function of, of how much cash can be distributed over time. And so there are some businesses that, um, especially if they're growing, need to consume a lot of cash in order to grow. Um, there are other businesses that can grow without using much cash. So we have a position in Paychex, the payroll processing company. And that's a business that they've built the kind of payroll processing platform. They can add more customers. And, and for basically every new dollar that they take in as revenue, they convert about 70% of it to, um, to profits for every new dollar, right? And so they don't need to reinvest much to, to, to grow the business. And so they have been able to pay out on the order of like 85% or so of each dollar of earnings, they can distribute out to shareholders in, in dividends and, and buybacks. And so um, once you have assessment of, of a business like Paychex or a very kind of cash hungry business, you can make an assessment of what their distributable cash flow over time will be. Now, this is an important point is that as a shareholder, you don't actually own a claim on earnings per share. You own a, and you, and you don't, probably don't own a claim on the assets unless the company goes bankrupt, which hopefully it won't, right? So we think about like, well, what's the book value? What's the value of their assets? It's not relevant to you as a shareholder unless there's a liquidation, right? In which case you'll probably get zero anyway because the, the bondholders will get that. Right. But what you do have a claim to is, is the distributable cash, whether or not the company distributes it or not. So like a business like Alphabet or Google produces a ton of cash and they don't pay a dividend, but that cash is still your cash and, and you know they can do valuable things with it and they can return it over time to you. So we build out a forecast of those cash flows. And then, you know, it's basically what's the present value of those cash flows. Now we have our, our proprietary way of doing that, but it's not like there's some special sauce, right? I mean, a discounted cash flow model is, as you mentioned, you're in business school, you're learning all about it. Mm -hmm. And I think there are, it is a, it's a powerful tool that can be misused. Um, you basically can solve for almost any intrinsic value you want by tweaking around discount rates and cost of capital and stuff like that. Um, but I think that it is the only tool, even even if it offers false precision, it's the only tool that matters. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, then from there, and, and you mentioned this earlier when it comes to your criteria when you're assessing a potential new investment. And you've also, you've written about this as well. It's this idea of emerging moat businesses. Can you tell me more a little bit about this concept? Yeah, so I mentioned this idea of a, of a legacy moat business, right? A, a business that had a competitive advantage, maybe still does, but it's losing relevance, right? Mm -hmm. And Emerging Moat's the other end of the spectrum. It's a business that may not have a, a competitive advantage that is strong enough really to qualify for what we say we focus on, but which is clearly developing those. And 
those are harder to identify, right? To, to identify something that's developing rather than something that has already developed, but it's potentially far more lucrative. Um, so if you look at um, businesses that have high returns on invested capital, so they generate a high amount of incremental returns for every dollar they reinvest in their business, that's frequently a sign of a competitive advantage because if they didn't have one, why are they earning such great returns, right? Other people should be coming and stealing those away. But there's uh, research from both RS Investments as well as Morningstar that does competitive advantage analysis, both of which showing that, yes, high returns on invested capital or strong competitive advantages lead to outperformance. But businesses that improve the returns on invested capital or increase their competitive advantages produce the best returns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with your audience focused on microcap stocks, not all of them may have deep competitive advantages that make it, you know, almost impossible for someone to compete with them, but they may be developing those. And I, I think that that's where your grand slams come from, right? I mean, that's where, you know, you create enormous returns is when you identify that before people recognize what's happening. Because honestly, many businesses that have deep competitive advantages are well known as having that by the market and are appropriately priced. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one one thing that I've always been, I was kind of curious about throughout, you know, some of your your answers to my questions is, you know, especially since you don't really focus on microcap, and I'm not saying the following concept isn't important in microcaps as well, but, you know, it's this idea of timing, you know, and being able to you know, happen to, when you do your screen or you happen to see an idea and you're starting to do your due diligence on it, whether or not you think your timing was uh, correct or wrong in, in, at, that, at that certain point in, in, in time when you got the idea. So, you know, how do you approach this idea in terms of, you know, yeah, you may see a good idea, but, you know, had you seen it maybe three months before, it would have been more interesting. You know, how, how do you, how do you, uh, how have you figured that out over your investing career? So when you think about timing, I guess there's two elements. There's absolute and then relative. And so by absolute, I mean, are the, are the re- potential returns on offer at today's price attractive or not? And then the, the relative one is, are they going to get even better, right? Or were they better previously? And the absolute one is super critical. The relative one is, is irrelevant and people go way off track by focusing on that. So um, just to make the math easy, like let's say you see a stock that's trading at 15 times earnings and you believe it's going to be worth you know, 20 times over, say, three to five years or whatever it might be. And so you say, yeah, that's a good enough return for me. I think I can earn 12% a year or 15% a year, whatever your math suggests. Mm-hmm. And if you sit around thinking to yourself, well, gosh, they might miss earnings. They'll get even cheaper. I can do even better. I think you're making a mistake that you, you are playing kind of armchair psychologist and thinking that on top of being a great business assessor, you also can outpredict what other people's psychology is going to be across a market, which I think has been well proven as one of the most efficient things in the market is that it's almost impossible to outguess the market over short-term timeframes. Mm-hmm. So we really try to kind of ignore that idea to say, like, is next week a better time to buy the stock or next month? And we focus exclusively on am I happy with the returns that are on offer today? And if they get even better, I might add some, right? And, and we, we take different position sizes based on how attractive something is. So we might say, well, I'll buy 4% of the portfolio at this level. And if, if it gets cheaper, I might be 6% of the portfolio or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. 
But we don't think to ourselves, well, let's wait till after earnings because maybe the stock will fall. You know, we would if we thought we were good at that. But (laughs) and honestly, I, I haven't come across many people who are. Gotcha. So, you know, sorry, not, I, I know I keep switching around you, but I just had another question pop up in my head when it came to the, the idea of emerging moats. And I'm just curious, you know, do you take more of a, a bottom up or top down approach when you're looking for companies or, or businesses that are emerging moat businesses? What do you mean by bottom up and the, top down? I guess the sense, the, the, the question being is, you know, do you happen to see, uh, do you look for the trends in a business and then find companies that fit that? Or when you're looking at a business, like maybe one specifically or a couple, and you happen to see, oh, this looks like an emerging moat business right here, you know, what else is there? You, do you see what I mean? Yeah, so we're, we're are just reading about individual companies, one after another. <laughs> and and we, I don't think there's any better process than that. You know, it's funny, we will go out to say institutional investors. And one of the questions that they want is, you know, tell us about your, your idea generation process. And what everybody wants to hear is that you have this like systematic automatic process that you can just pump things through like a machine. The fact is, if that was possible, then we'd be out of a job because that can just be automated, right? Like all of the moves towards quantitative investing and AI, it could all trounce us if, if what we did was kind of repeatable in that way. And so I think there's really nothing else to just learning about one story after another, no matter how time consuming it might be. Mm-hmm. And so I give that as backdrop to say that I don't think we have the ability to identify from a top down level, like, oh, here's a group of companies that might be emerging moat companies. Instead, it's just we're learning about businesses and we'll come across one and, and we'll realize, you know, there's some really interesting stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. I really see what their strategy is all about. It's a very smart strategy, and, and they aren't there yet. And if somebody comes along with the right competitive counterattack, they could really knock the feet out from underneath this business. But if they're successful, you know, it's not just that their products going to be good, but they're going to become dominant in some way. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you about an example in yep. a business. Is the one that worked out for us is that um, we made an investment in Netflix um, about three years ago or so, and we still own it, and and. When we looked at Netflix at that time, we were like, wow, this business is an, an amazing business. You know, people love it. It's priced incredibly attractively. Um, there's great kind of economics if you understand that they're, that they're subsidizing their growth through reducing the price that they, um, they charge for it. But at the time, we were like, you know what? These content makers, right, like all the businesses that actually make the shows – they shouldn't be selling the money, they're selling the content, excuse me, to Netflix because they're just feeding their own competition. And if, if Netflix keeps going along this path long enough, they're going to be able to kind of go back and, and break free of their dependence that they had on the content companies. And so at the time, we said, we can't make this a kind of a core position because the content companies might wise up and stop feeding them their content. Mm-hmm. Over time, as we owned it, became clear that Netflix was breaking free of that dependence. Today, they make more original content than anybody else in the industry. They just swept the Emmys, right? I mean, they're the best content maker, and they have freed themselves of their dependence on the other content producers. So today, we think that their competitive advantage is just enormous, that the, that the content companies made a huge mistake and, and should have shut off the sale of content to Netflix years ago. Mm-hmm. But that mistake's now made, right? I mean, the, the cat's out of the bag, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's done. 
And yeah. so we think they now have this competitive moat that is in, unimpeachable. Um, but a number of years ago, we were aware of, of ways in which they could fail. And, and so when I say an emerging moat stock, that's what I mean is that they, they had not yet built up the walls of their moat yet, right? But they were building it. But there was the question, right? Are the barbarians going to come through the gates before you finish building this moat or not? And, uh, and luckily for Netflix, they didn't. Yeah. No, it'd be interesting to see now from uh, other uh, studios and, you know, for full disclosure, I am not an owner of Netflix or Disney, but it's in, it would be interesting. I'm very interested to see what happens now where they take that Netflix model of all, you know, uh, uh, in-house created content and, and how that works, you know, especially with the, the Disney Plus. I think they just came out with news uh, either today or yesterday. That was the name or something. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit, but going back to the, the question about timing, you know, uh, one, one question I had for you is, and I think, and I'm pretty sure this does apply, is, you know, why do investors then make the mistake of paying statistically cheap prices for assets that have an unknown intrinsic value? So when I go back to um, David Draymon, right, and what, and what he was showing was that you could buy baskets of stocks. And if they had a low P.E. ratio or low price to book or high dividend yield, that as a group, they would outperform the market overall. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that premium, the value factor as a, as a statistical premium, has been eliminated um, for the most part by quantitative methods that have gone out and exploited it. That, that is a well-known phenomenon that has largely been exploited away. Mm-hmm. Um, However, the lessons of it, the general lesson is still true, right? That, that paying less for something that it's worth is the only path to outperformance, like by definition, right? That you can pay a very high PE multiple, but if it's true value of, this, of the company is more than the stock market cap, as that, as that closes, you're going to outperform, right? And so the mistake... I think a lot of investors make is they take the general statement that's accurate that baskets of undervalued securities outperform and they apply to individual companies and say, well, the stock, this stock is trading at 12 times earnings, therefore it's cheap. But it could be true, but it may not be true at all. There might be lots of very good reasons why it's, um, why it's trading at that level and should trade at that level more permanently mm-hmm. or low. Right. And so um, we, we just don't get excited at all when we read about a company that is trading at 10 times earnings. Right. Just on its face. Like that doesn't th- make us think to ourselves, hey, that's pretty cheap. We should take a look. Instead, it's the opposite. Instead, it, we don't pay no attention to valuation during the early stage of our, our process. And we get excited when we hear about a company that has some sort of, in, of competitive advantage. Um, a number of years ago, um, we had a position in Lowe's, the the home improvement retailer that competes with Home Depot. And we learned that both Home Depot and Lowe's, they spend their own advertising dollars to run radio ads that advertise Scott's Miracle Grow, a separate public company, to, to advertise Scott's products during the spring gardening season. And we're thinking, this is so weird. Product makers are supposed to pay retailers for shelf space or, or advertising. Why are the retailers paying the product maker or, or effectively subsidizing them through paying for ads? And, and well, turns out that Scott's is a very important driver of traffic for Home Depot and Lowe's during those periods. And so the normal power 
dynamic in which the the giant retailer holds major power over the smaller product maker was reversed during a short time frame each spring um, of the lawn and garden season. And and so that's what got us excited about Scott's. And subsequently, it was also trading a low PE ratio, but it was that understanding of their competitive advantages that got us excited. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I this might be my own amateurness, but you know, it seems that you know when it comes to just looking at you know PE ratios and and you know uh, and, and ratios like that, you know, you're always comparing it also to other companies maybe in the similar industry as well. You know, like so. There, there's really no point to also just get excited about that when you know like, okay, I have to also now assess, well, within this industry, is this the industry norm or is this still below what maybe some of its competition is? Yeah. I really, I really believe that today the identification of a, of a stock trading at a quantitatively low price, right, some ratio, has become totally irrelevant to the investment process. Because the amount of computing ho- horsepower that is running that analysis every second in far more sophisticated ways than thinking like, is it a low P ratio, absolutely has any individual investor outgunned. And so there's basically no value to the process of saying like, oh, this indicator suggests the stock is cheap, therefore maybe I want to invest. Um, that probably was useful um, years ago. It's, it's not anymore. Mm-hmm. So get, getting back to some of, you know, the content that you have on your website that I wanted to, you know, follow up a little bit more about. And one question I had was, you know, what, what are the three key drivers of a company's cash generation ability? So I alluded to return on invested capital, which I think is probably the most important concept for investors to, to understand. Um, People talk about you know value investing, right? Cheap stocks or growth investing, and, and people understand how growth can create value. And even though return on invested capital or return on equity, which is kind of a close cousin, um, is certainly not like a secret. It's not like you turn on CNBC, no one says, and our next company has extremely high returns on invested capital, right? No, they talk it's got a hot product or it's growing quickly or whatever it might be. And and so that. Ab- the ability to generate a high return for every incremental dollar you reinvest in your business is what produces cash. So the average S&P 500 company generates return invested capital about 10%. And it basically, if you kind of run the math and understand debt, they basically are able to convert about 40% of each earning dollar of earnings into cash. And that's great. But a high return invested capital company might be generating, I mentioned paychecks converting 85% of every dollar of earnings into cash. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that every dollar of earnings is worth a lot more, which is why the P ratio is so dependent on cash generation ability, right? That if, if all of that dollar you're earning is, needs to be plowed back into the business, it's not worth very much. Um, and so a company's ability to generate uh, high returns invested capital is the number one generator of cash. Like anytime you read about a company and they talk about it has like, you know, just outstanding cash flow. Well, Mm -hmm. what's happening is that it is converting dollars of reinvestment into cash. So that's the most important one. Um, Having a, uh, you know, a low, if you, if you have access to debt and, and the market will, will supply you debt at a low cost, then you can create leverage in the model 
and generate even higher return on equity and generate additional cash for your equity shareholders. Um, and I, and then I think at the end of the day, those are your kind of quantitative metrics, basically what is your weighted average cost of capital and what is your return on invested, uh, return on incremental investment. And then there's just the more qualitative piece. And then I've talked about relevance for a while, but you know, will the demand for, for your offering sustain and grow over time? Mm-hmm. And that can be a hard thing to, to grasp is the hardest part about what we do, right? Is basically trying to predict the future. Right. And we believe that while that process is, is challenging and it's not with a lot of precision, that it's a really important thing for investors to do. So you think about like a, the concept of a, of a value trap, it basically something that looks like a great value, but it's not. And the reason it's not is because it is, it's slowly dying, right? And it, its numbers can look great even as it's, it's dying. And so you want to find businesses that have increasing relevance over time, that what they do is only becoming more and more important to the world. Right. So then, you know, that's actually a perfect segue into my next question. And this also, my next question I was also alluding to uh, something you said earlier when it comes to, uh, you know, the real value of the company that you want to find is, you know, the future cash flows distributed to shareholders. So, you know, what I'm looking to know is, you know, how then do you determine whether a company is, a, and I quote, a special class of company that offers a far more predictable future. So this is, you know, just another way to get the, the question around competitive advantages. So yeah. the business world, you know, it, you need to think of it almost like a, a biological ecosystem. Um, uh, Robert Hagstrom has written a number of books about, um, about Warren Buffett that are very good, but one of his books, it's probably one of the better books about investing is, is called Investing, and then the subtitle is The Last Liberal Art. And Hagestrom draws on psychology and all these different disciplines, and one of the ones he looks at is kind of like ecosystem of, of predator and prey. And this idea that you have like deer and wolf, say, in an ecosystem, and to the extent that the, the deer are doing really well, they find a bunch of you know yummy grass to feed on, and their population swells, it triggers a response from the wolves to say, gosh, there's all this prey. And they, you know, they, they start breeding and you get more wolves and then the population of deer goes down. And so, you know, you have this, the, the very success leads to the downfall. And that's how capital markets work, right? It's the very success of a business that causes other businesses to perk up and take note and go after that end market. And so what's dangerous is that the very observation of success that you might note of a company it may well only suggest that it's about to decline, right? That everyone else sees that too. So, so it's, it's success may just be kind of a target on its back to attract competition. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about a special class of companies is that some companies have these competitive advantages, something that everybody knows they're a great business, but they can't do anything about it. So we've owned MasterCard for a long time. Visa is very similar. You know, these businesses just mint money, fantastic returns on capital, fantastic operating margins. And it'd be wonderful for a competitor to say, oh, yeah, we're going to create, um, you know, this, this payment system and everyone's going to adopt it. It's going to be better or cheaper than MasterCard. But for you, Robert, if you walk into a store and you have some new payment card and the, the store doesn't accept it, it's useless, right? So you, you wouldn't even sign up for this new payment pro- uh, system if no one accepts it. Right. But the reason no one accepts it is because no one's carrying it. Right. And if no one's no one's carrying it, then who's going to start accepting it? So you kind of have this chicken and egg problem. The network effect, basically. 
That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And so because of that, everybody knows what a great business MasterCard is, but they can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that special class that we're talking about. And, and you know, that it's not what we do isn't easy and we don't fool ourselves. You know, like we, we've, we've done OK over the years, but it is just because we think we've identified this. All we're looking for is an incremental edge over the average investment. Right. And, and the bigger the edge, the better. But we're not suggesting that you need to identify some perfect company that's unimpeachable. Um, But, you know, every stock in our portfolio, we believe there are compelling reasons why their superior economics will persist for a long time. Hey, like you said earlier, it's about that conviction. And then it's also about your client's conviction and your strategy, just as important as your own. So that's something I won't forget. That's pretty interesting. I, I really like that. Um, so now my next question is, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask, you know, I, I, I have to know, you know, what, what investing experience would you say has guided your thesis the most? Gosh, um, I guess, I guess it's the financial crisis. Mm. You know, I think that, um, I was pretty blessed in a lot of ways. I think that every successful investor needs to recognize that, in all likelihood, there were some very lucky conditions that combined with, you know, their skill and their expertise and, and allowed them to be successful. Um, and so for me, I entered the investment industry right at the tail end of the dot-com boom. And so my initial experience was seeing the decimation of a bubble. Um, and I, but I, I didn't have any money I was managing. I didn't really get hurt by it, right? I was just a, a, a new guy at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, and, and so... The good thing about that is it really drove home how important value investing is, right? The dot-com bubble was the triumph of value investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing that it's important for people to remember is that the ideas behind the internet bubble were correct. The internet did change the world. I would argue that the internet has been a more powerful shift to our world and to business than people fully appreciate in the late 90s. But they over-extrapolated how much value that would create for the individual companies. Mm-hmm. And so I, I definitely kind of, that was, you know, I'd had the value investing inoculation. I think that drove home the point. Um, but then, you know, a decade ago, the financial crisis happened. And I think one of the things that I learned was, was that there are businesses that have something about them that even when everything is falling apart, they're not going to go out of business. Like they're still generating cash, right? It, it might have be a lot less than you thought the year before, but they can still function, right? They can still move forward. And they're still producing cash that allows them to say, hey, look, our competitors on the verge of going out of business. Let's go after their customers. Hey, let's go acquire that business that's on the ropes. And so it's during periods of crisis that I think competitive managed businesses most move ahead of their competition, right? The stock isn't always doing ready, but it is doing great, but it is preparing for the next leg of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I think the financial crisis really drove home this idea that you you really need to be in these resilient, robust businesses, that you never know what's going to happen. And so you want to invest in in a business that can survive no matter what's going to come down the pike. Right. And also make sure that there's a manager that uh, does how to properly uh, uh, deploy capital, you know, so that uh, you can manage those those times. Um, 
So then, you know, what what advice then do you have for for new microcap investors that are maybe just getting their start and, and looking to uh, start start you know really investing in some of these businesses? So I guess you know Munger talks about the value investor inoculation. I guess I would think of it you know as this inoculation into understanding you're buying a piece of a business. It's, mm. it's forget about the stock. It's your job is to learn about businesses and. And, and that really changes what you spend your time doing, right? And so, I, you know, I still read books about like, you know, investing books from people who I admire, but more and more I read business books, right? I mean, understand it has business work and, and you can find, you know, journals, industry journals and understand what is going on in, in the industry, right, in, in the sector. And, and, and there's so much information. I think that one of the big things that's changed in investing over the last 20 years or so is this idea that it used to be that you could find some sort of information that other people didn't know or appreciate, and that's how you could outperform. Today, it's the, the reverse. There's like a fire hose of information, and and the only way to outperform is to understand what to ignore. And you should be ignoring like 95% of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the first test is like if the information is about stocks, you can pretty much ignore it. Mm-hmm. If the information is about a business or businesses, then that's a, a first slice for what to pay attention to. So I guess my advice to people new to investing in any size company is to recognize like don't worry about the stocks too much just think about the businesses and and understanding those businesses mm-hmm. and then you know uh, uh rounding the bend here Sean and uh and I do thank you so much for your time so you know where can my audience now go and find more information about you and intrinsic investing and ensemble capital Yep. So um, Ensemble Capital is a wealth management firm headquartered in Burlingame. It's kind of midway between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Um, you know, we offer private client services with a minimum of $2 million investment. Um, we manage the Ensemble Fund, a publicly traded mutual fund um, that has no minimum investment size. Intrinsicinvesting.com is, is our, our blog. We write about a lot of our philosophies here. And then on Twitter, where we're very active, um, you can follow us as well, and, and uh, just under Ensemble Capital. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the things that we've embraced as a firm is is engaging with other investors, doing podcasts like this, and and you know, lots of firms want to be out there for marketing purposes, but we just find that um, it's a happy coincidence that the best way to improve our process is by engaging with people about what that process is about, and it also happens to be a great way to expose people to what we do, right? Um, so we're thrilled for you know any of your listeners who have questions for us to approach us on on Twitter. We also offer a, a quarterly conference call that we advertise on Twitter, and you can find the Ensemble Capital website. That's you know for our clients and investors, but it's open to the public, and we post transcripts and all of that sort of thing. Well, Sean, I welcome you back to come on anytime you want to uh, teach yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Sean, with that, I want to—I really just thank you so much for joining me today. We, we really give so such a wealth of information, and uh, again, thank you for your time, Robert. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, and good luck to everybody with your microcap investing. <laughs> thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Sean, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com.
I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.